It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 354 for August 4th, 2013. This week, two researchers have shown that the various computers in a car can be taken over wirelessly iTunes has never worked well on Windows computers, or Apple computers for that matter, and if you're looking for a replacement, I have some suggestions. In short circuits, Microsoft wanted to call the Windows 8 interface Metro, but ran into legal trouble with the name. Now the same thing has happened to SkyDrive. A class action suit says that Apple failed to pay employees for the time they spent in Apple stores. And Google boots AT&T out of Starbucks stores. Looks like kind of a short show this week, so maybe you'll get some time off for good behavior. Let's get started. Remember the old murder mysteries that depended on the bad guys cutting the car's brake line just enough so that it would fail as the victim was driving down a steep mountain road? The car would sail over the cliff, burst into flames. Well, as a method of murder, that never seemed very reliable. Now, writers can have the villain reprogram the car's computer to simply drive off the cliff. Researchers presented information on Friday at a conference in Las Vegas showing how it is possible to hack a vehicle's computing system. This has wider implications because computers are involved throughout cars and trucks, and because they're also largely responsible for running airplanes, and trucks, and ships, and subway systems. The researchers, Charlie Miller, who is a security engineer at Twitter, and Chris Velasic, who's director of security intelligence at IO Active, showed how they were able to take over computers in a Toyota Prius and a Ford Escape using a notebook computer that connected wirelessly to the car's electronics. What did they control, you might wonder? Well, they controlled acceleration, brakes, horn, the seat belts, and the headlights. So now, the villain could just turn off the headlights in the victim's car as it's making its way down that curvy mountain road, and then cause the car to accelerate. Now keep in mind here, Miller and Velasic are good guys. They presented their findings on August 2nd at DEF CON in Las Vegas. DEF CON and the Black Hat Convention are separate events, but both are held in Las Vegas. DEF CON, which is not to be confused with the military's DEF CON, which is a defense readiness condition, is a large convention of hackers that occurs every year in Las Vegas. The first one occurred in June of 1993. The Black Hat Convention attracts a more corporate crowd. It consists of two primary parts, Black Hat briefings and Black Hat trainings. The conference is hosted by the National Security Agency. That's a group that's been in the news a lot lately. The briefings section attracts employees of government agencies and corporations who want to hear the keynote addresses. The training session largely involves classes on security techniques that would help experts better analyze and test attacks. About to get back to cars, automakers began using electronic control units, or ECUs, in the late 1970s. Back then, they just used them to control carburetors. The goal was to produce vehicles that could offer better fuel mileage. You may remember that was the era of the first big fuel shortage. Today, though, ECUs are located throughout vehicles, and they communicate with each other all the time. 
The presentation by Miller and Velasic illustrated how controls are used in the Toyota Prius and a Ford Escape. It covered the tools and the software needed to analyze what's called a controller area network bus. Then they demonstrated software to show how data can be read from and written to that bus. Those parts of the discussion might be something you'd consider to be dry and uninteresting, but Miller and Velasic then showed how certain proprietary messages can be replayed through a device that's hooked up to an onboard diagnostic system connection, known as the OBD2. It's there mainly for use by technicians at an auto dealership, but it can also perform critical functions with Miller and Velasic behind it, such as changing the braking and steering. The researchers say they wanted to see, once someone was inside the car network, to what extent they could control the automobile. The results really are disturbing. Taking control of the steering requires a car that makes steering functions available to onboard computers, of course. There aren't a lot of those, but both the Toyota and Ford have self-parking features. For its part, Toyota says that its systems are robust and secure. The company is unimpressed with the facts presented by Miller and Velasic. Ford, on the other hand, says it takes the research very seriously. Toyota might want to bear in mind that we once thought airliners would never be piloted intentionally and at high speed into tall buildings. It turns out that any processor on the network is vulnerable because the internal systems don't generally bother to validate the sender of information that they receive. The problems don't have immediate and severe implications, though. Cars use different operating systems, and as a result of that, a malicious hacker would need to know the codes that apply to a specific vehicle that they want to attack. Making this information public might seem like a disservice, but the researchers say that they hope car companies will understand the need for onboard computer security sooner rather than later. there must be something better than iTunes. I have uttered that very expression, sometimes accompanied by a variety of epithets over the years, because no matter how good Apple's hardware music players are, the software isn't exactly something to be proud of as a programmer, and particularly not on Windows computers. So what else is out there? Well, I've tried several of the competitors. One of the earliest was Winamp, and I bought the professional version so that I could qualify for updates whenever the program was updated. And even 15 or so years after my initial $20 purchase, the upgrades still work. The primary problem with Winamp is that it looks and feels like something from the mid-1990s. Winamp version 0.2 was released in April 1997. By June, the developers, Justin Frankel and Dmitry Bolturev, were ready with version 1.006. The current version is 5.6. Then I used MediaMonkey for a while, but it seemed to have a relatively robust collection of bugs. The current 4.0 release supports most music formats, and it's available as both a freeware version and a paid version, both of which accept skins, third-party plugins, and use extension scripts. And of course, there is iTunes. It has been on my computer most of the time, in part because at one time it was the only application that could reliably store music 
to an iPod device. I removed iTunes when one version wrecked an iPod every time I plugged it in. And by wrecked, I mean it destroyed all the music on the iPod in a way that the only solution involved a factory reset. Earlier this year, I installed the latest version of iTunes, but I haven't quite worked up the courage to plug in either iPod because I don't want to take the time necessary to reset the iPod and reload all the music if Apple hasn't yet fixed the problem. And I don't particularly care for the latest iteration of the iTunes interface. Elegant is not a term that springs to mind. Muddled or confusing might be more on target. So I continued looking for alternatives, and I found Clementine. Clementine is a relatively new cross-platform free open source application with a bit of a history. It runs on Linux, Windows, and the Mac OS X. The developers note that the player is based on Amarok, a much older player that is also cross-platform, free, and open source. Amarok is part of the KDE project for Linux, but it's been released separately for other platforms. The most recent version was released in 2008. Clementine is technically a fork of Amarok that's based on version 1.4 of that player. Later versions were viewed as bloated and hard to use. Clementine is designed primarily to do one job, allow you to listen to music that's stored on your computer and to internet radio stations such as Spotify, Grooveshark, Last.fm, Soma.fm, Magnatune, Jamendo, Sky.fm, and Icecast. Those are among the supported services. Beyond those basics, Clementine makes it really easy to enjoy your music. It fetches lyrics, artists' biographies, and photos from various internet services that you select. If the cover art is missing, Clementine will search both Last.fm and Amazon to try to find it. Clementine can transcode music to MP3, Aug Vorbis, Aug Speaks, FLAC, and AAC formats, and it works with music brains to search for descriptive tags. You can also edit the tags that have been applied to MP3 and Aug files. If you want to play an audio CD, Clementine will do that without first having to rip the contents of the CD to your music library, although that's an increasingly common capability for music players. Not all of them can still just play an audio CD. One of Clementine's most impressive features is the speed with which it scans a music library. Because of the number of selections I have, this process can take 30 minutes to an hour with iTunes. Clementine managed the same process on an older notebook computer in about 10 minutes. Not surprisingly, Apple's support is a bit problematic. The iPod Classic protocol is supported natively, but support for the iPod Touch requires that iTunes be installed. This doesn't mean you have to use iTunes, but Clementine does need access to some of the iTunes files to perform the synchronization. Once again, Apple seems to be looking out for their customers' needs. And yes, it is essential to say that last sentence with a real smirk. My primary portable music devices are iPods, but I also have music on an Android tablet and a Windows tablet, in addition to a Windows desktop and a Windows notebook. The ability to upload music to these devices is important, and it's something that Apple actively tries to block. Unfortunately, Apple seems to be winning the battle with Clementine, and I have not been able to upload tracks to an iPod Touch. There's no doubt that iTunes has the prettiest interface, but Clementine's fast database management and the automatic connections to Last.fm, Wikipedia, and other services make it a standout from my point of view. 
Bottom line for Clementine is four cats. If you don't like iTunes, Clementine might be just what you're looking for. Clementine's the music player that makes sense for the way I listen to music. One of the others might be better for you. You can check out a lot of the other options in an article that you'll find on Wikipedia. I provide a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And if you'd like more information about Clementine, there's a link to its website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, remember Metro? That's what Microsoft wanted to call the Windows 8 interface and what most of us still call it, even though a German company, Metro AG, filed suit against Microsoft for using the name and Microsoft stopped using the term. Now the same thing has happened to SkyDrive, Microsoft's cloud-based storage service. This time it was a British company, broadcaster B-Sky-B, that said the name infringes on one of its trademarks. B-Sky-B filed suit in Britain, Microsoft lost, and in a negotiated settlement has agreed to stop calling their service SkyDrive and not to appeal the ruling. Microsoft says the agreement will allow for an orderly transition to a new name. Perhaps they'll decide to rename SkyDrive as Coca-Cola or Chevrolet. Nobody could possibly be using either of those names. Or maybe Microsoft might want to consider hiring somebody to do some trademark research first. Former Apple employees in New York and Los Angeles have filed a class action lawsuit against the company, saying they were underpaid by about $1,500 each year. The suit was filed in the Northern California Federal District Court. Suit contends that employees are required to spend approximately half an hour per day at the end of each shift waiting for their possessions to be searched. They're not paid for the time spent waiting for the searches. Apple, of course, conducts those searches to reduce thefts from the stores. According to published reports, Apple's sales associates make only about $25,000 per year, even though Apple's stores are the most profitable retail spaces in the United States on a square foot basis. Apple has not commented on the suit. Google and Starbucks. 
That combination seems so obvious that one has to wonder why it took this long. Starbucks has approximately 7,000 locations in the U.S., all with Wi-Fi provided by AT&T. Starbucks is booting the phone company and bringing in Google to provide the service. Google announced the change with its typical quiet understatement, and I quote, When your local Starbucks Wi-Fi network goes Google, you'll be able to surf the web at speeds up to ten times faster than before. If you're in a Google Fiber City, we're hoping to get you a connection that's up to 100 times faster. Yeah, beware the weasel words, up to. A connection that is the same speed as the old connection is still up to ten times faster because up to establishes a top end of a range and leaves the bottom end unstated. That said, it's likely that Google will provide substantially faster service than AT&T did. Installations are scheduled to begin this month, and Google should be in all 7,000 stores by the end of 2014. Google is pushing hard to provide free service everywhere, it seems. For example, the company paid more than half a million dollars for the rights to provide free Wi-Fi access to more than two dozen locations in San Francisco. There's probably a profit motive in there somewhere. The agreement covers a two-year period. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.